My Car Guru, Season 11, Episode 103. Howdy, folks, and welcome to this edition of My Car Guru. This is a recorded edition because right now I could be standing on the Las Vegas Strip. Probably not. I'm probably in a meeting. No, let's see. So this is Eastern time, and that's mountain time, I think. It might be. Yeah, I think it is mountain time. So it's two hours behind. So this radio show plays at 9.06, I believe. And so it would be... No, I'll be awake. I'll be at the meeting probably soon, eating breakfast, eating some soggy bacon and eggs that were cooked in a vat. Yeah, those uh, massive halls and, I guess, convention centers that they have out there, it's just ridiculous how fancy that place is. And I use that word fancy. Ornate, I should say. But when they're cooking food for that many people, loses a little flavor most of the time. But I'm hopefully I'm learning something today that has something to do that will help our customers enjoy our the experience at our car dealerships better. Maybe tell us about some new products that are coming down the pike. We shall see. But this is not some recycled repeat. This is fresh stuff. I just recorded it yesterday. So I just got an interesting email. I've got some new cousins that I didn't know about. Many years ago, I signed up with Ancestry.com. Some of you may have done that. I would recommend it, and I'd also recommend that you do the DNA thing because that's how I'm finding all these cousins. And hopefully I can get some car deals out of it. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. No, it's very interesting. Uh, One of the things I found out is, is my mother and my grandparents on her side always said that they were from Ireland, and it was a big deal. My grandfather would go back to Ireland, and in fact, his grandfather did immigrate from Ireland. Uh, His name was Andrew Gott, and then his son was also Andrew Gott, who also fought in the, the Civil War, and he was on the losing side. So were most of the other people in southern West Virginia at the time. But anyway, Andrew Gott... Uh, has no DNA in Ireland. As a matter of fact, they all came from Germany, or maybe Austria, but anyway, definitely not from Ireland. I have no DNA that shows up anywhere on the Green Island. Now, such is not the case for Scotland, because I've got a lot in Scotland. It looks like we are, or I am, 65% Scottish, but you won't catch me in a kilt but I have had fun with this. It has been very interesting. Several people have reached out to me, you know, some of these long-lost cousins. And uh, we've had some pretty interesting conversations, and I've shared information. Thankfully, my mother was and her side of the family were very diligent as far as building the family trees. It made it much easier to build my family trees and get a head start in the Ancestry.com thing. So this is not a show about Ancestry, but uh, I thought you might find that semi-borderline interesting. So let's move on to cars. You want to? One of the things I wanted to talk about today is a safety-related issue. Do you wear your seatbelt? Do you wear it correctly? Are you short? You know, I'm not. I'm 6'3", and so it fits me pretty good as far as the shoulder harness, and they have those adjustable things, you know, on on the B-pillar there where you can raise and lower. Didn't used to have that. But still, sometimes that won't go low enough to be comfortable for a short driver, vertically challenged driver. 
don't want to offend anybody. But if that shoulder harness is not where it's supposed to be, it may cause issues if you're in a major collision. More than likely, it will. Now, I've talked to a lot of people. My Well, I'm not going to say who. Let's say that I work with him. Whenever he calls me from his car, I can hear his seatbelt warning thing going off, going ding, 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 ding. And I say, you know who? Are you not wearing your seatbelt? No, I don't ever wear that thing. You know, I have a person that actually bought a little seatbelt clip that they cut off so they could stick it in their seatbelt buckle so that it would fool the car and the warning system. Why do you do that? I just don't like it's not comfortable. I don't like wearing a seatbelt or a shoulder harness. My daughter, Audra, was in a bad accident in a VW Jetta. She'd had her driver's license one week. And I thought the Jetta, we had a used one, and I thought it would be a pretty safe car for her. So I was in Atlanta at the car auction, and I get this phone call and said, Audra's been in a wreck, but don't worry about it. She's okay. And I said, well, that, okay, what happened? And they told me, totaled the car. But she had her seatbelt on, and all the airbags went off. And I remember going back to see the car behind the dealership the first time, and I lost it when I saw it because my daughter was in that car that was wiped out. I mean, it, it was just bad shape. I mean, the top wasn't crushed or anything like that, but every corner of the car had a dent on it. She had uh, lost control of the car going around a curve, going down a hill. She, the right side of the car, the right wheel, front wheel had gone off the road. So what she do? She overcorrects, puts the car into spin, takes out a, a fence row, multiple trees. Thank goodness she didn't hit another car. But all the airbags went off, but she had her shoulder harness and she had her seatbelt on. Now, you know, if you don't have your seatbelt on, then you're going to be bouncing all over the car, easily thrown out of the car. And the airbags aren't able to do what they're supposed to do. But in this particular case, they were. And the only thing that, the only indication that Audra had been in a car wreck is she had a busted lip. And I remember looking inside the car, I saw one little drop of blood on the airbag. That was it. If she had had, hadn't had her seatbelt on, I feel certain that she would have been thrown out of the car. Now, many of you know, if you've listened to this show, that I lost my son in a car accident. Uh, the seatbelt nor the airbags would have made a difference in that accident. I'm not going to get into it, but you know, sometimes they will save your life, and sometimes they won't. He had his seatbelt on, and the airbags went off, and he was not thrown from the car. But it was just the type of accident. So you really don't know. But I think you improve your odds greatly if you're wearing your seatbelt. Now, the reason I bring this up, I was reading a little bit about the accident that killed Dale Earnhardt, and it was basically a very survivable accident uh, because he you know, hit the wall at, at a very blunt angle. I mean, he was going around Daytona Speedway, and he was turned sideways by another car, I think, but anyway, he was passing, and he ended up uh, just diving right into in, in the middle of a bank turn and diving right into the wall. Well, he would have survived it if he had just simply taken advantage of the technology that was available at the time called the Hans device. Now, the first time I ever got into a race car was at the Richard Petty driving experience that they have at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. And they give you an orientation around the track and stuff, and then they put you in a real live NASCAR race car. Now, you have a pace car in front of you that limits your speed a little bit, but, I mean, I got up to 156 miles an hour going around that track. 
needless to say, if I had been in an accident, you know, something or a bad accident, hit the wall or whatever, I could have been killed or injured badly. But I had the Hans device on, and I had a five-point harness on as well and a flame-retardant suit. So the odds were better that if I was in the accident, I would, I would have survived it. Now, the Hans device basically was created by, uh, really as a result of an accident that occurred at Mid-Ohio Racetrack in 1981. You had this guy named Patrick, I think it was Jacquemart is how you say his name. But he died after a head-on collision with a dirt bank. Uh, his car was really not damaged that bad, but he ended up with a skull fracture. Same thing that killed Dale Earnhardt, but it caused a severe brain damage. And lucky for other racers, two of his friends stepped in and created a safety device that changed the sport of car racing forever. Those friends were two guys named Jim Downing and Jackamart's brother-in-law named Dr. Bob Hubbard. Now, the two decided to combine Downing's knowledge of racing and Hubbard's expertise in engineering and skull anatomy, he had expertise in that as well, to develop a new safety gear to try and prevent deaths like Dale Earnhardt's. Uh, the simple and effective invention they created became known as the Hans device, or head and neck support. Now, you'll see these dri- all the drivers use these now. And if, if you watch any NASCAR races, you, you'll notice how stiff they are as far as their heads. They can barely move side to side or front to back for that matter. But instead of inflating a cushion like an airbag to stop the driver in the case of a collision, the Hans device uses a raised collar and two tethers to secure the driver's head. So it's a shoulder collar that attaches to both the car's seat safety harnesses and the driver's helmet. So in the event of a crash, it keeps the the racer's head and neck properly aligned with the torso, preventing any kind of excess force that would otherwise result in a serious or a fatal neck and head injuries. But it took years for the Hans device to become a financial success, and unfortunately it took the death of, of Dale Earnhardt to make it so. In Earnhardt's crash at Daytona, NASCAR determined that he hit the wall at 160 miles an hour. Can you imagine? And he immediately slowed to 67 to 70 miles an hour in just 80 milliseconds. This sudden deceleration is known as the delta V, or the change in velocity. Now, it's really difficult to provide statistics on how many lives have been saved by Hans devices, but we do know this, NASCAR, where Hans devices are mandatory, did not have one driver fatality in 10 years after Earnhardt's death because of its emphasis on safety. But there were 126 deaths from crashes on drag strips and short tracks where the Hans devices were not required. And Hans estimates that of those 126 deaths, as many as 27% or 34 driver deaths could have been prevented by using the device. So it won't save everybody, but it has proven to save a lot. And with that, we'll be back in just one minute. Okay, I am back. You know, we're getting a lot of interest in hybrids right now. And so we're getting a lot of customers that are asking about the differences and how hybrids work versus a a regular internal combustion engine versus a battery electric vehicle. Hybrids are, are definitely unique, except they're using both technologies to save fuel and to do some other pretty cool things. So let me give an example of my F-150 pickup truck. And it is a hybrid. It, it's On the side, it says 
power boost. Now, if it was a just a regular F-150 uh, Platinum, like mine is, that has the 3.5-liter engine, it would say EcoBoost on the side. So whether it's a power boost or an EcoBoost, it has basically the same engine. It's a 3.5-liter fuel-injected engine with two turbochargers on it. What the hybrid does is it adds an electric motor. It's sandwiched in between the engine and the transmission, and the truck will run on full electric power if the conditions are right. When I say conditions, it's, it's how hard I'm pushing on the gas pedal. Am I coasting? Uh, am I on a flat grade? If I'm on a, you know, there's just really no grade to the road, then it will stay in battery for probably a couple miles. Typically, I'm on full electric power when I look at my trip odometer at the end of, a, you know, in between uh, fill-ups. It will have used electric power for about 25% of the time. Now, that doesn't really translate to really great fuel economy. I mean, I get, it's rated at 24 on the highway and 24 in the city. I've never really gotten that. I, I, maybe it's because of the way I drive, but I don't think so. Uh, it gets 22, 22 and a half on the highway and about 21 around town, which is still pretty good. I mean, I remember when trucks used to get 12 miles to the gallon, and there are still some out there that do. And this is a big truck. I mean, but I tell you what, when you hook a trailer to it, the fuel economy goes down to about 12 miles to the gallon, but that's true with just about anything. But what I really like about it are the other things that I can do with the power boost. For example, I could power my house. I can power a job site, like if I have to go out and do something in the woods and I need power tools, I can plug them in. I have a 240-volt plug, 30 amps, that are accessible to me, plus about eight 110 outlets. If I don't have a hookup for my camper, I can plug it right in there. I can run my air conditioners. I can run my, you know, my refrigerator. Um, I can do just about anything I want to in my camper. Now, if I want to run both if I want to run everything, then, then my camper requires a 50-amp service, and 30 amps isn't enough. But still, it gives me some versatility. Now, I could go full battery electric. That's where there is no EcoBoost engine. There is no internal combustion engine on this vehicle. It is a full electric vehicle like the F-150 Lightning that I have on my lot here at Gateway Ford. But the hybrid is my choice right now. I, I got 625 miles out of my last tank of gas. Now, it does have a 30-gallon tank, but still, that is really good. The F-150 Lightning, probably 320 to 350 miles of range. Now, is that doable for just everyday driving around East Tennessee? Absolutely. I mean, I could live with that. I could even go to Knoxville and back and go to Bristol, and you know, I could drive a pretty long distance and not have to charge. The problem is, if I go on a trip... Am I going to have a charger where I need the charger to be? And if I get there and there's two or three other cars waiting, then, you know, it could be a disaster. So if you're out there shopping for a new vehicle and you have a particular model that you like, let's say you like the Hyundai Santa Fe, ask them if they have a hybrid option. I don't know that they do for a Santa Fe, but Hyundai, I know, sells a lot of hybrids and they have battery electric vehicles. You know, one of the things that I would recommend that you do when you go to a dealership, it doesn't mean that you have to buy it. Just tell them you'd like to test drive an electric vehicle. Like if you came to Gateway Ford, just say, hey, Lenny said I needed to drive a Model E or a Mach-E, I'm sorry. Uh, are you interested in buying one? No, I just want to drive one because Lenny said I could. 
of course, they would do it anyway. But you could drive the F-150 Lightning. See what the electric vehicles are all about. It's better to be informed so that you can make a good, logical decision. But maybe a hybrid is for you. Probably a third of the F-150s that I have on a lot right now are hybrids. The, the power boost has been very popular. Probably 90% of the people that buy them will probably never use all the electrical connections in the back, but they're there if they need them. But now I've sold several to uh, contractors, and they use them all the time. They plug in all of their rechargeable um, nail dr nail guns and, and drills and things like that. They think it's great, and it really is. It's, it's very functional for those kind of folks. Okay, so I'll take my last break. I'll be back here in just one minute. Okay, I'm back. Just a warning, just a heads up to you people who use independent automotive repair shops. So if you have an engine problem, let's say, and you have to replace your motor, and you don't want to take it to the new car dealership that sells that particular brand, you want to use your independent shop. But they're going to order a, let's say they're going to order a complete engine from your local Chevrolet dealer. Well, if they replace that engine and there's a problem with the engine, you know, putting a, uh, pulling an engine out and putting another one back in, it's a pretty labor-intensive deal, and it costs cost anywhere from $500 to $1,500 to do that in labor. Now, if your engine fails, it's, it's under warranty. Make sure you know what the warranty is on that replacement engine and where it came from. Sometimes these independent shops will get engines that from other remanufacturers. Basically, they take old engines and rebuild them and then put a, slap a warranty on them and sell them. But they're not always very good. Uh, the rebuilds sometimes, the failure rate is much higher than it is for a brand new engine from the manufacturer. So what I want you to do is just make sure you know what the warranty is. And does the warranty cover labor? We had a customer that ordered a diesel engine from us and they had it installed by an independent shop. Well, there was a problem, and it had aftermarket fuel injectors on that engine, and one of them was putting too much fuel into one of the cylinders and melted the piston. Now, is that a covered event? No, it's not. It's not covered because of the injectors. So, you know, some, you can have an unrelated part cause a major failure, and it's not going to be covered. Now, if that engine had failed, then, you know, just because of an internal problem, a defect in material or workmanship, then General Motors would have stood behind that engine. But they don't cover the labor. And sometimes the independent shop will want to charge you again. It's not their fault, you know, that the engine was bad, but it's not your fault either. And so you would have been better off going to the uh, Chevrolet dealer because there they will cover parts and labor. So it's just something that you need to be aware of, especially if you have a major failure. It could be a transmission or a rear differential or a transfer case or the engine. Something to do with the air conditioning could get really expensive as well. So just make sure that, that if you're taking it to an independent shop, they're probably buying the parts from one of these parts houses like Advance Auto Parts or O'Reilly's or Napa or somebody like that. And some of them have really good warranties, but many of them don't. And you also need to find out if it covers the labor. 
because if the part fails, then there's who's going to pick up that labor tab? Could be you. And depending on who the part came from makes a big difference on how long the warranty is. If you buy a part through a new vehicle dealer and it's an original equipment part, sometimes they'll cover that that part for three years or 36,000 miles. That's a lot of, a lot better than a 90-day warranty on something, and that's basically all you get from a lot of these vendors. So these are just some things that will happen to you, may have already happened to you. Hopefully it hasn't. But if you have a major failure, feel free to give me a call or send me a text, 423-552-2020, and I'll answer your question as best I can. I'll even do a little investigation for you. Uh, you know, we don't warrant anything but Ford and Nissan stuff because those are our franchises. But I know a lot of Chevy dealers and Hyundai dealers and Toyota dealers and so forth, and I can get answers that you probably you could get, but I might be able to get a little quicker. So take advantage of that or send me an email to LennyLawson2020 at gmail.com, and the guru will get involved with you. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.